Welcome to the Movement Made Better podcast, powered by Stick Mobility. We are your hosts, Dennis Dunphy and Neil Valera. Today, we are very excited to have our friend on, Blake Gorlay. Blake, I'll turn it over to you to give a little introduction to yourself, sir. Yeah, thanks for having me. Dennis reached out on Sunday and I was like, I was really excited because I actually turned to my girlfriend and I was like, oh man, I got invited to be on this podcast. I've seen what they've been doing. It's like, looks really high quality. So I'm, I'm excited to, to be involved and, and come on with you guys. And it's already been fun chatting with you guys. Yeah, just a little background on me. I ended up rowing four years in high school and then I got recruited to Cal. And that's kind of where a lot of my background started. And I was fortunate fortunate enough to be recruited. But what ended up happening was my first semester, I just, I had a back injury that, to be honest, it was like, it was my decision to stop rowing, but it was also just so painful in so many different ways <laughs> um, mm. that it, it wasn't worth it to me. Like, I remember my coach being like, I, I know people who have this in- injury and like, well, you can come back, you can come back. And I just remember like five months straight seeing five different doctors and like every single position just being painful. And I think a lot of it was just kind of like a, a mental fear of like, how, how do I return and can I return without this pain? And looking back at pictures <laughs> of how I rode, like it's pretty clear why I ended up tearing up my back. So I had, I had Spondy at L5S1 and then a bunch of slip discs. And, but anyway, it was like, it, it's pretty obvious now. And basically what I wanted to do was I wanted to become the person that I needed at that time, right? So I didn't know that at the time, but got injured, finished school at Cal and then got into rowing coaching. So I coached high school rowing for nine years. And then I was, I was kind of running my personal training business on the side and it just ended up growing so much that I had to make a decision. So I had to either, I had to go with personal training in my business or I had to go with coaching. And it was a really hard decision, but I, I chose to go with personal training. And the connection of the two in my experience is kind of what sets me apart in terms of like having the specialty with rowing because I'm able to, to speak coach to the rowers uh, and, and to the coaches. So like I do do things that are specific to the sport of rowing, but again, it like comes down to like, we're all humans. Right. Yeah. And it just comes down to understanding what we need and what that individual needs. But yeah, so I, I basically got a bunch of certifications. I got my master's degree in, in sports performance and have just been studying and, and practicing um, and trying to, you know, my passion is to help rowers specifically who have back pain or who are trying to avoid back pain. But, you know, 50% of my clientele are, are, general population as well. How old were you when you took the, took up the sport? Started running my freshman year. Oh, okay. I was really, I think we were both really surprised. It was hard to get an actual amount of people that do competitive rowing, but I think we were both surprised at how many people are competitive rowers. It's a bigger demographic than we thought. Yeah. It's a, it's a growing sport and especially with the popularity of, of erging and being able to, to row on the rowing machine on your own. That's, I think that's also helping it grow for sure. But yeah, then you kind of have the two demographics. Like you have the, the people who do it for exercise. Mm-hmm. You have the people who do it competitively on land, and then you have the people who take it to the water. And there's a lot of similarities, but a few differences as well. You know, so looking back at your, your injury from your, um, you said you looked at your movement pattern and you know why you had the injury. Was it because of certain physical limitations that you rode that way? Or was it something you, you think you could have fixed just through technique? I think it's multiple. So I, I think 
One of the cool things that I was able to do when I was coaching for nine seasons was I, I did the functional movement screen on 120 athletes every year. So I have this just like pile of data and we know that it doesn't tell us everything, but it gives us a, it gives us a good idea. A big common trend is that people who have bad active straight leg raises, specifically asymmetrical or one, they tend to be at a higher risk of a back injury or pain. Right. Like it's, it's kind of common sense. So I think my active straight language is pretty bad. <laughs> and I remember seeing the pictures of me rowing and I just had a super round C lumbar spine. You know, some of that is how certain rowing coaches coach. So some, some rowing coaches, wow. like they want you to have a C spine. Oh, interesting. Okay. And then when you drive and you, you initiate that press off the foot plate, you actually arch even more through that lumbar spine. So I think I was doing that for four years in high school. And then I got recruited to Cal, who at the time, they were undefeated national champions. So they were at the highest level. So I got recruited to a very, very high level. I don't think I rode super well. I don't think I had great hip mobility. And then they also swapped my side. So for four years, I was rotating to the left. Mm, Wow. Okay. And then at the highest level I'd ever been, they swap me to the other side. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, the, the tor- you're used to torque on one direction, and then all of a sudden it's like, you know, your body's molded that way. And then boom. Yeah. I still have asymmetries from, from rowing. <laughs> wow. Like I'm still not, still not right. So yeah, I could imagine four years on one side and then switching to the other. That's, that's probably a big, big part of it. So because you're talking about singular rowing, versus people that are doing both sides simultaneously. So what's the, yeah, those are two different distinctive applications of rowing. Yeah. Um, So there's sculling and then there's sweep. Okay. So sculling is when you have two oars. Okay. And then sweep is when you have one. So sculling, it's interesting because it's a little bit better on your body because there's not that rotation to one side and Mm -hmm. people tend to specialize like I did, like four years on one side. Okay. But it's also heavier. It's also a heavier stroke because the size of the boat and the weight of the boat, and it's only you. Mm. So based on the size of the boat, how many people are in it determines the weight of the stroke. So yeah, it's better for you in terms of like mechanics, but it's a heavier load. So that's sculling. And then sweep is rotational. So you have one oar, it's a big oar, you put your entire load on it, it tends to be bigger boats. And yeah, you just you just crank around that axis over and over and over again. We put in so many strokes. Excuse me. Well, what's let's so let's say typically what like what's a practice session duration wise? Yeah, so most practices will be three hours. Oh, <laughs> Oh. And it de- I mean, it depends on, depends on the program. So let me yeah. get more background there. When I was running in high school, it was three hour practices, five to six days a week. Damn. And that's pretty normal. And then sometimes there'll be double days. And then in college, there was, there was double days and practices were an hour and a half each time. But it was, it was, it, we'd usually get like one day off, like Sunday would, you'd get off. But it's it's like it's really high intensity. It's really high volume. Yeah, uh, and it's the same pattern, back to back to back. And now, strength training program wise, what was that set up like? Um, in high school, there was nothing. My okay. coach, like my coach, one year grabbed my arms and was like, "You need to lift." <laughs> okay, what's that mean? <laughs> like lift what? <laughs> <laughs> so I remember like getting a, a membership at the local the local gym. And it's like, we bench pressed. Okay. And I don't know. I don't know what else we did. We bench pressed. I remember that. 
That's okay. like all we knew. Um, and, and then college, it was it was like two days a week in the mornings. The strength coach was good. I liked him. He was a good guy. Don't think he really understood the sport though. So it just ended up being like, ended up being really high volume weights, which I don't think rowers need. Uh, yeah. All right. You know, when you were in college, were they training, retraining different based on your position too? Like if you're right side, left side, were they? Yeah. <laughs> no, good question, but no. And I would say from what I've heard about Cal now, like in the last five years or so, because I know people that go there, they, their weights is optional. And I know when I interned at Stanford, I worked with, I, I worked with men's rowing, but it was also optional. And I maybe worked with a, a male rower like once while Ooh. I was at Stanford for that six month period. So some teams believe that you don't need weight training. They're, they're like, we, we get enough in the boat. It's resistance training. That's all we need. So it's, it's a little behind the times in, the, in that, in that sense, but it's not everywhere. What are some of the best exercises that you implement with your rowing clients? If we take a step back a little bit. So for me, I always look at like, who, who am I getting? Like, who is a rower? Mm -hmm. Right. Like, and I feel like looking at the type of athlete that they are, they tend to be, they tend to be tall and lean. And with that, they tend to be pretty uncoordinated. And I'll, I'll say that because I've been through this and I know a lot of people who are like me, um, <laughs> not talking down to anyone. And then they also have this mentality that it's all about hard. Just how hard can I work? How hard can I work? How can I hard work? Can I work? How many times can I say that? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so what you realize is like, you have to choose things based off of that. Right. And then you have the demands of the sport. So you have the high volume, you have the weight of the stroke. So the weight of the stroke based on research ranges from like 56 to 166 pounds per stroke. Oh, damn. And of course that's a wide range. Like I said, mm -hmm. singles or scolding, that's a little bit heavier. Right. And it depends on you know, who's in your boat, how big the boat is and all that. And then there's different parts of the race. So the beginning's heavy, middle is a little bit lighter. And then the end is, is a little bit lighter too, because you're just, you just bumping the rate up and going as fast as you can. So you have the weight of the stroke and then the most common important races are 2000 meters. So it's like 200 strokes at that weight. And then you need, you know, you need enough mobility at the ankles, at the hips, at the T-spine, and then you need enough stability to be able to transfer that force without kind of getting that bend in the spine, for example, or, or getting an injury. And then I look at the research and it's like injury rates are 32 to 51% annually, wow. low back pain, 82% a year. And then in terms of like performance measures, the research is like, you need height, you need limb length, can't change those. You need lower body strength. You need lower body power. You need grip strength. Grip strength has actually been correlated. And that, that's kind of interesting if we want to go there at all. Rowing specific power. So like how much power can I produce? in the mm -hmm. boat or on the rowing machine. And then obviously like a high level of fitness. So I kind of take like all of those into the picture in terms of choices. But maybe if you looked at my program, you would be like, oh, that's pretty basic. Mm, <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Right. So like uh, getting into exercises, um, if we start with like hip dominant, I love trap bar deadlifts. Mm, yes. um, and that's because they tend to be long. They tend to not be able to deadlift well from the floor. Like a lot of rowers can't get into a good position from the floor. And then just the change in the shearing load, because the weight of the stroke is already producing a very high shearing load. Mm -hmm. So I don't think they need to do that with a barbell deadlift. Mm -hmm. So I always go trap bar for that. And then in terms of like a single leg hip dominant, um, love SLDLs, single leg deadlifts, mm -hmm. mostly because of pelvic control. 
and it teaches them to get a better like tall hip hinge rock over at the beginning of the catch. And like you guys know, with, with weightlifting, it's all about the setup. If they don't yeah. get into a good starting position, the rest is ruined. So to me, that's, that's the setup in the rowing on the rowing machine or, or as a rower. rock forward, tall, get that body set in a good position, make sure that you can tilt at the pelvis. I don't think you learn that without the SLDL. And I love your guys' airplanes and helicopters. Mm. You, you guys talk yes. that one and I, I use that all the time and it tends to help rowers a lot. Because that just helps strengthen their whole hip capsule in all three planes of motion, right? Yeah. So like a lot of people think rowing is, is a bilateral sport, which it mm -hmm. is. Yeah. But it's also very asymmetrical because mm -hmm. of the rotational forces, even sculling, even tours. It's very rotational. You have side bending and then you're in a boat. So you're doing this all the time. So it's mm -hmm. about being able to control the pelvis in all planes, mm -hmm. right? So I love airplanes and helicopters for that. And I've, I've seen a lot of people who haven't been able to get into a good position. And I've done things in addition, there's other things as well, but airplanes mm -hmm. and helicopters were one of the ways of me improving their hips and pelvic position that transferred over to the stroke. So I, so I love that. So thank you for that. Well, fantastic. Uh, yeah. Awesome. And uh, yeah, I just, I just read a study on hip motion and how it impacts uh, row, rowing performance. And this kind of like reaffirmed my belief, but also reminded me like how important pelvic positioning and pelvic control is. So what they found is that the, the people who were able to consistently reproduce the same motion at the hip under a, a full effort 2K, full effort row, they were the ones that had the best performance. Mm, so I think nice. from an injury standpoint and from a performance standpoint, if we can really train someone to not only be able to possess the prerequisite mobility at the hips and the pelvis, if they can control that under fatigue mm. and under different loads and, and different movements, I think that is going to transfer over to the sport more than almost anything. Because do you find that most people think you, you're, you're trying to dominate with the shoulders on that rowing motion? Because I think we see it a lot on, in, on ergs in the gyms, right? Yeah. A lot of people think it's an upper body exercise. Like I, I can't tell you how many times people ask me what sport I played and I'd be like, I was a rower. And they're like, Oh, you must have real, a really big upper body. I'm like, well, you're looking at me and I don't. <laughs> <laughs> and rowers kind of take offense to it. Cause they're like, no, this is a lower body sport. Like we're yeah. all about having strong legs. We never, we never skip leg day. Like we're proud of having strong legs. So yeah, if, if you do it correctly and you have enough stability, to be able to transfer the force from the upper body to the lower body, then you can be really, really powerful. But yeah, looking at the machines in the gym, like people always have it cranked up to 10, which mm. makes it as heavy as possible. Mm -hmm. Rowers tend to row around a three. Oh, um, really? So it's like people are already kind of making it like a strength training exercise when it's not supposed to be. Uh, that's but yeah, there's that misconception for sure. Yeah, that's a big one. Yeah. You were talking about measuring leg strength as part of a performance indicator. So how would you do that? You know, because you got yeah. your, is it a squat, a single leg squat? I typically do a deadlift and I, I'll kind of base the choice of the deadlift based on the individual. So preferably just trap our deadlift and I just, I ended up testing like a, uh, max five rep just to kind of see where they're at. Okay. Historically, I haven't tested the squat the same way. Like I, I still think it's important. I still think it's part of the equation, but when I'm testing lower body strength, I'm looking at trap bar. On the squat, are you typically doing front loaded or back loaded? Good question. 
I only do front loaded. Okay. Yeah. So kind of the same thought process with the trap bars, just the shearing load is so high that they don't need all that extra compression on their spine. And it also really works with the sport. So in the sport, you rock forward, you get a forward body angle, mm-hmm. and then you drive from the front end and you're trying not to lose that angle that you had from the beginning. What ends up happening is, is people will either collapse or fall forward mm-hmm. into the front end or they won't get enough angle. So I find that a lot of times just adding some load to the front gets mm-hmm. them that extra core engagement to teach them the proper position in the stroke. So I like it for that reason as well. Um, I almost always use the Dumphy squat as the first one in terms of like teaching that because a lot of, like I said earlier, like a lot of rowers, like they don't have a high level of coordination. So they need help understanding how to create tension. So that's been really valuable too. Well, because I mean, the longer I being short, I mean, it took me a long time to understand what someone at six, five has to deal with vastly different than myself at five, three. And so I think a lot of coaches kind of overlook that. I I mean, I could say I was, I'm still uncoordinated, but I would say until I interned at Mike Boyles, I was uncoordinated. And I, the reason I know that for sure is that they make the interns go through everything, speed, agility drills, like every single thing before you teach it, you have to experience it, which I I agree with. And I had to stay after like two days in a row because I had no idea how to skip. (laughs) I had no idea how to do like any agility work. Like it was, it was embarrassing. And I was like, I can't teach this. I can't even perform it myself. But what I found is, yeah, I know. Right. (laughs) (laughs) What we have to do is older strength coaches. Um, <laughs> but yeah, what I found is like, I obviously learned and I developed it and I was way more coordinated and I was way stronger, or at least I felt way stronger. And I find that a lot of the rowers that come to me, they don't even know how to skip. Like they can't do that cross diagonal pattern. So like even at the most basic level, just just teaching them how to first march the correct way and then yeah. skip the correct way is huge. I don't know if you guys have seen this, but like, the person that can't skip tends to be the person that has like a really poor reflexive core. Oh, very yeah, good call. Yeah, very right? true. So like anytime I can get them to skip, also I start to see changes in terms of like how their core responds and like the push-up improves. Mm. So like even at the very basic level, getting them to skip and do like lateral movement, they hate it. And they're like, why is this important? <laughs> but it's so good for them to like actually be an athlete and not just so narrowly focused. You feel like that gives them a better sense of, you know, when, when the changes in the boat happen, you know, you t- you're talking about all the different rotational lateral forces that they can stabilize a little bit quicker. Yeah, I think that's important because like we could we could talk all day about like, okay, get tight before mm-hmm. you pick up the weight of the stroke. But like, it, are they going to be able to do that under fatigue? How much energy are they losing by like creating that much tension? And then there's also like the thin balance between having too much tension in in your sport, right? Like yes. there's so many technical components where you have to be like light, light and controlled and precise with your hands. Mm-hmm. And if I'm teaching them to like grip the handle and break the handle and create all this tension before they change directions, it's going to take away from their, their sports performance too. So yeah, I, I always prefer that we get to the point where it's reflexive. Does it always happen? No, that's that's always the goal. So talking about grip strength there, when you're when you're holding the the oar, do you want it in your fingertips? Or not fingertips, but like, you know, kind of loosen the fingers, or do you want that thumb around it too? Yeah. So the the thumb will be around it, but there's kind of a hang. 
So I'm okay. kind of I'm kind of like hanging here. Okay. Uh, hopefully people are watching and not listening. Um, <laughs> so, so you're kind of hanging on it. It's not like a tight grip. It's it's a loose grip. And then sculling, it's it's even more more of a hang. And then with sculling, you you actually turn the oar like this. So you like roll your fingers to turn the oar, oh. which is a whole whole nother component. Yeah. Um, and then with sweep, oh, yeah. you're doing this to turn the oar. Oh, like you're revving a motorcycle. Like you're revving a motorcycle. Yeah. Oh, I kind of thought that was the same with sculling. So it's, oh, that's very, that's a massive difference. That's a lot of technique. Oh, that'd be a weird. That'd be take a long time to learn that technique. Yeah, I rode in a single, so two hours for the first time in probably like fifteen years because because of COVID. And I was trying to, I was trying to do this. I was trying to rev and start that motor. And by the end, my wrist was just, my wrists were so sore for like two days because that's not how you're supposed to do it, but that's all I knew. So yeah, it's, it's a big difference and I'm, I'm a rowing coach and I know better. So, I mean, so yeah, it's the nuances. So it's not just muscling it and gripping it and cranking on it. It's a, it's a, the subtleties that, that a lot of people overlook. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. But that max grip strength has a bit is a big component as your performance measure, right? Yeah. So so research has proven that, and then my personal experience has as well. So probably the last two or three years that I was coaching, that that same 120 athletes or so, I was getting their grip strength every couple of days, and I was just kind of like seeing like does this does this show me anything? And I was looking at it from a more of a, like a monitoring if I could monitor their readiness. That's that's kind of how I was approaching it. Are there big dips? Are there big rises? Um, do I see any like performance relationship? And the cool thing is that I was doing this even as I transitioned out. So like the last season that I transitioned out, there was a lot of athletes I didn't know because I wasn't there anymore. I wasn't there in person. So I was kind of blind to everything besides the data I was being given. And what I found was that the top performers persistently had the highest grip strength. Mm. I actually, without knowing the athletes... I actually predicted who the top lineup would be for all teams. And the only time I missed someone, I missed like one or two. The only time I missed them, they had dropped out. They weren't in the in the sport anymore. Oh, gotcha. Oh. So if I just look at grip strength and then if I look look at movement as well, I have a better prediction. But grip strength seems to be the biggest predictor of growing performance. So did that did the people with the highest grip strength have the the heaviest trap bar deadlifts too? So yes and no. So there's like, some of them are tall, some of them are short, some of them are heavy, some of them are light. Um, So there doesn't seem to be a direct correlation there. And then, yes, all of them were strong, but they didn't have the highest numbers. Okay. It wasn't like the the top eight was the top eight deadlifts. In my opinion, you guys will have to tell me what you think, because I think this is pretty interesting. In my opinion, I think grip strength is tied to our nervous system. Right. So I think it's about, I think it's about a body alignment. I think it's about being healthy and I think it's about being strong. I think that's kind of what it's telling us. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, no, I would definitely agree with that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I know they, they use grip strength for that nervous system measure for a bunch of different sports. So do you think though, you know, cause rowing is very grip intensive. Like if you were to test them, you know, on a day that they just rode for, you know, three hours, you know, did that have a big effect on their numbers? Um, yeah, maybe not the answer you're looking for, but I think I actually screwed up a few times. And like, some sometimes they would squeeze it in there, like they would like throw out their grip. 
and they like hurt their hand. Like, oh shit. <laughs> maybe maybe I'm testing a little too often. <laughs> um, <laughs> but in terms of like um, the the readiness thought process, and sorry, Neil, if I'm not answering your question. The other cool thing that we saw was that like if you saw like a big dip, and I forget exactly what we considered a big dip, maybe like ten pounds or something. When you'd see a big dip, sometimes you wouldn't know that that person was like starting to need time for recovery or starting to like mm. feel like they're running into the ground. So what we would do is we would be like, okay, go check in with this athlete. And we just go in, we'd have a conversation with them. We wouldn't say why we're checking in. Mm. And almost every single time they'd be like, Oh, like my mom and dad are in a fight. I didn't sleep last night. Mm. Or like I have midterms coming up and like, I, I'm really stressed out. So that was super interesting to see like what I thought it might do. Mm-hmm. kind of come to fruition. And then again, there was that season where I was doing it where I didn't see anyone. And the coaches were telling me like, wow, that's crazy. Like this, this guy had this problem going on. Mm-hmm. And like, they wouldn't have thought to have that conversation if they hadn't seen the the difference or that drop in grip. Fascinating. Because I mean, you talked about the heavy row versus at the mid and end where it's a lighter, you're talking about how much water can you push, right? Or pull through or how much water you're grabbing. So it's, it's kind of like you're at a dead stop Mm -hmm. at the beginning of the race. Mm -hmm. So you, you try to build that boat speed. So first it's like super, super heavy. Mm -hmm. So like throughout the race at the beginning, it's heavy. It's lighter in the middle because you have that momentum and then Mm -hmm. you go really fast. You just bring up the cadence at the end. Okay. It's lighter. Right. Okay. And then you have throughout the stroke. So like the beginning of the stroke is heavy, right? When I put the blade in the water and I initiate, that's heavy. But my goal is to always accelerate. My goal Mm -hmm. is to always make it fly into my chest. So it's not a a hard pull into my chest. It's so much power from my legs Mm -hmm. and that effective transfer and swing from my upper body that it flies into my chest. And a lot of times people have bruises on their chest. Oh, shit. Damn. I don't know if that's a good thing, but that, that shows you that shows you how fast how much, it'll fly in. <laughs> that, that's a lot of power. We're a little little armor there. Little yeah, yeah. wear a little chest, <laughs> do a little wear a little pad. Do people wear pads? No, I don't think I, so. I haven't seen it unless they did it under their shirt and I didn't notice, but and I know one one of the things is when people want to use a rower at the gym, if you had to advise them on what some of the major points or pieces of advice you'd give them to to think about when they start or when they're there so first it's about getting the feet right so you know how you can adjust the feet up and down Mm -hmm. you have the different holes so you you want that to be low enough that it allows them to get into a good position so a lot of people go up high and then it requires more ankle mobility and most people don't have a ton of ankle mobility Mm -hmm. so making sure that that is in a good position so you want that basically as low as you can go as long as the strap goes right over your shoelaces. Okay. So you don't want to like, it depends on the person's feet. Like I can go lower because my feet are a little bit bigger. Someone's smaller, even though they have like poor ankle mobility, you would want to take them all over the bottom. But if you did that, their foot would pop out of the strap. So it's, it's kind of restricted. So first get the feet, right? I would set the damper between three and four. So the fan setting between three and four, again, because like we talked about earlier, I don't think it's a strength training movement. I think it's conditioning. I think it's about that acceleration and speed. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's just a rowing purist kind of thing, but yeah, keeping that lighter. 
it's a little harder to learn at first when you have it lighter because you don't have as much resistance. Mm-hmm. So like if you want to kind of teach people to find connection, you can change that fan speed a little bit, go a little bit higher, but you have to be careful because it ends up overloading a lot of people when you're, when you have a high fan speed. And then kind of what we talked about earlier is like the setup. So when I'm at the back end, can I hip hinge and swing Mm -hmm. forward without rounding my spine? And then from there, it's just, can I control and hold that angle to the front? In terms of changing directions on the drive, as soon as I start pushing, make it your focus to keep it as smooth as possible. It's it's the difference between someone deadlifting with no tension and just yanking it off the floor. Mm-hmm. And it's the difference between someone yeah. having full tension, engagement, and then driving. So you, you wanna you almost want to take your deadlift and make it your rowing stroke. Oh, nice. Okay. So when you say no, you know, no rounding of the spine at all, are you saying more lumbar or you don't want any thoracic rounding at all? I mean, in the most ideal situations, I, I as little flexion as possible. Okay. Um, most people can't do that. I think what it ends up being, and this happens in the sport of rowing as well, is as little lumbar as possible okay. and then as much thoracic as you need, right? But I think where it gets really dangerous is just the change in position. Okay. So it's so like, yes, extra flexion is dangerous, but it's more about the the micro changes or like that that lack of tension and that that pickup and and crack <laughs> yeah. in terms of how that spine moves. So like a lot of people I'll see that have back pain, they'll, they'll get that like additional bend every time they pick up the, the weight of the stroke. Is there, as far as where to push off on the foot or on the feet, is there any specific sequencing that you would recommend? Yeah. So, um, allow yourself to roll up onto the ball of your foot. Ideally it's not excessive. Ideally it's like no bigger than a tennis ball. Okay. So roll up onto the ball of your foot. And then I want to press off the ball of the foot. And as soon as I can, I want to get my heels down. And then once I have my heels down, I'm trying to press through the entire foot. And then once I get to the finish, I want to push my toes into the foot plate. And if you really concentrate on pushing your toes into the foot plate and really the entire foot, but more focus on the toes, is you'll feel your core engage and you'll be in a better yep. position at that other side. So your legs should be in full extension then. Yeah, legs will be fully extended. And ideally, you're thinking about keeping pressure against that foot plate. A lot of times people will pop on and off, pop on and off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Really bad for technique, but it also like you lose your core, you lose your connection. Mm-hmm. And same same way you think about like rooting into the floor with your feet. We we often say, like, imagine there's a hundred dollar bill under your under your feet. Wow. If you, right. if you drop it, you don't get it. People, well, people push the shit out of that plate now. <laughs> you got to give people the right motivation sometimes. And sometimes that's what it takes. You can make a correlation like that. And people actually get it then. That's a great one. That's very good. One, one time we actually brought uh, dollar bills. We weren't that rich. Oh, we brought dollar yeah. bills and like put it under the kid's feet. And these are high school kids. And they're like, mm-hmm. anything I have to do to get that dollar. <laughs> Put a little glue on my shoe. There. <laughs> That's a good one. So, what about strokes per minute uh, you know, in terms what, of recommendations for people? Yeah, yeah. I say variety. So, okay. obviously, obviously, start low. I, I always like to teach and learn between sixteen and twenty. So, so pretty slow, which is also going to make it a little heavier, which is also going to help you find that connection. And then, once you find that connection at that lower speed, you can start to add higher rates. So, I'll usually go sixteen to twenty, and then twenty to twenty-four. 
So basically in increments of four. In terms of like rowers, they're now competing at like 40 and higher. Whoa. <laughs> which, is, which is really, really that, fast. Damn. That's really fast. Holy shit. Yeah. I wouldn't recommend that for general population. <laughs> no, um, no way. Oh my goodness. Know, maybe, maybe like high, high 30s, 34 maybe. But yeah, you don't want to push it too far past that. I picked a concept to row up last year, probably yeah, right around this time. And I, you know, I'll mainly use it and kind of look at my heart rate. So, and I'll, I'll pay attention a little bit to the strokes per minute and I'm probably hanging out at like 23 to to 25 and I'm kind of going just more of a steady pace for about 20 minutes or so. That's a smart place to be in. I know a coach that actually designed like a whole chart based off of rates. And he, he says that like, you know, these rates are aerobic, these rates are anaerobic, et cetera. And he kind of has that drawn out. Of course, there's, there's some limitations to that, but yeah, in general, if you're just going for like a, a longer aerobic stimulus, keeping it lower is going to make more sense. And then if you want to get anaerobic, you, you can spike it. Yeah. But you can make it anaerobic by just going really hard at a race oh, yeah. 16. Yes. Yeah. Um, breathing sequencing. We're inhaling as we go into the flexion, exhaling on the pull. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So the cool part about that is the research actually shows that if you do that one-to-one pattern that you just described, mm-hmm. inhale on the way up, exhale on the push. If you do that and you challenge yourself, at least to the, the point where you can actually successfully achieve it, because sometimes your heart starts going too fast and you can't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. If you can do that at your challenging point, right at that cutoff, and you can do that for, I don't know, 20 minutes, it actually improves your lung capacity. Just, nice. just thinking about how you control that breathing while you're, while you're doing that work. And then rowers in general breathe at a competitive rate, like two and a half breaths per stroke. So it basically ends up being like... <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, but I don't, I don't like, I don't try to teach people to fall into that pattern because it's, it's really tricky and it almost ends up, you almost like feel like you're out of control. Okay. So it's more of like, take as many breaths as you need, exhale in the drive, take as many breaths as you need, exhale in the drive. Because I think when, when we're exhaling on the drive and especially if we're making a sound or like a shh noise, when we exhale in the drive, we're automatically engaging our core. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. We need that stability. We need that corset around our, our spine. I like I like to teach, like make a shh noise right off the drive. And then I actually put this video out today. If you think about making the shoe sound to the speed of your drive, it gives you live feedback of how fast you're driving. So are you getting that acceleration? How is your drive speed? And then you have that live feedback. So it's like, shh, shh, if I want to pick it up, shh, shh, right? So if I give myself that live feedback, not only am I getting the benefits of that brace and that, that, that breathing pattern, but now I'm also able to adjust and remind myself if I'm starting to drop off or if I need to pick up my, my drive speed. And that's more important for, for rowers specifically because drive speed is very closely connected to gate performance. But yeah, in, in general, make a noise on the drive breathe in on the recovery. So are you focusing uh, on breathing in through the nose and then exhaling through the mouth or have you, have you messed around with just nasal breathing only? Um, I mean, I would love, I would love to do that for as long as possible, but I don't, I don't know how long you can do that. That'd be an interesting challenge. I want to see, I want to see you deal. Neil, you probably, probably a beast. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be interesting to try. That's what I've been trying to do is just only nasal breathing when I row. 
And I can't, I don't row fast. I don't, what's a good, I guess, what's a good test to see what your anaerobic capacity is on a rower? I like the 10 stroke, the 10 stroke max test. So basically it, it's kind of complicated to do because they, the monitor doesn't allow you to set it to 10 strokes and doesn't allow you to set it to like 10 seconds. But basically what you do is you, you choose like a slightly higher fan setting. I wouldn't say 10, but maybe, maybe five, six. And then you just, you just, from a dead stop, the fan is not moving mm-hmm. from a dead stop. You just go 10 strokes as hard as you can and try to see what your peak power is. The thing, since you can't set, set the, since you can't set the monitor, the thing is, is you want to like record the monitor. You need someone watching you so that you mm. actually see your peak unless you, unless you can remember. But the more info you have, the better. So you can kind of like break it down. Simplest way is you just, you look for your highest peak power. And that's, that's been correlated in the research to, to anaerobic power and, and performance. What I want to ask next is on the finish, we've pushed through the legs. Should there be retraction of the scaps? On the on the finish, or is that more just pulling in with the anterior arm line? I, I say ideally and for health, yes. Okay. I think I think when it gets into like practical race situations where people are competing, uh, just like all other competitions, it kind of goes out the window, right? Yeah. Like I, ideally, you're getting that proper movement, that proper form, and that squeeze. But if someone's trying to win and they're going as fast as they can, it's probably okay. not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So for just the average person that wants the cardiovascular benefits of rowing, then try to retract the scapula when you get back there. Yeah. I mean, you want, you want to stay healthy as long as possible. You're not, you're not trying to win a race. Every, every mechanic that you know should, should probably be replicated on, on the rowing stroke. Every good mechanic, you know. Fantastic. Where can people get a hold of you on your social media, get in contact with you? Yeah. At rowing strength on Instagram is, is where I'm most active. And then Blake at rowingstrength.com. If you, uh, if you have any emails, I'm happy to answer questions. Yeah. It's a good place. Do you have any projects coming up here or anything you're working on? Too many. That's a good thing, bro. That's know a good, all of them. If you got a lot, that's a good thing. <laughs> so I'm working on my second rowing book. Oh, very uh, nice. I don't know when that will be finished just because it's, it's kind of getting pushed to the back burner with everything else. And then I've, I recently picked up the science rowing project. So it's, it's, it's me and these two other strength coaches. We've been working together for a while and um, we basically pick a research article every month and we just go over what it means to us from a practical standpoint and can we put it into use? And then we share that with, with the rowing community. So science of rowing is, is kind of my biggest project right now. It's, it's really fun, but it's, it is time consuming. So is that a website there that you have? Yes. Science of uh, rowing? Scienceofrowing.com. Um, and then we're also on Instagram as well. Science of as science of rowing. Very um, nice. But yeah, that's seems to be way more interesting to like actual rowers. Cause that that's kind of our main target. So mm-hmm. Um, but check it out if you're interested. Follow oh, actually, one last, cool. oh, another question too. I forgot to ask. Recovery wise, after somebody's been spending an exponential amount of time rowing, as far as from a reversing the effects of rowing, is there anything specific that you do as far as stretching wise or moving, opening up other lines? I love to hang. I like to side bend. So like the bow and arrow with with stick mobility. Um, I think a lot of rowers need that and and respond well to that. 
Um, I remember when you guys taught me that, I was like, oh my gosh, is that what I'm supposed to feel like? <laughs> I, I'd never done a stretch for my lateral line. Never. Yeah, I yeah. don't think most people have. Yeah. 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 And, and you're right, like getting that interior line. So like ideally like hanging and arching open. I'm not sure what that's called. Um, Your monkey hangs, you yeah. Yeah. Monkey hangs. Yeah. Yeah. So I like those two. And obviously like hip flexors get super tight. Uh, quads get super tight. So honestly, just doing like a kneeling box quad with, with tension with a stick like that, that's, that's a pretty common one. Yeah. Those are the big ones. So then you're probably a big fan of doing a lot of exercises out of the half kneeling position. Yeah. Especially now that, um, I'm a little bit more focused on pelvic positioning. So just challenging that pelvis in different positions. Yeah. So chop, chops, lifts, uh, different stretches, presses. Yeah, I, I try to change the position pretty often. Fantastic. Well, thanks for coming on, Blake. We appreciate it, man. Uh, we were excited to have you on, and we look forward to having you on in the not-too-distant future, brother. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. All right, buddy. And to uh, all our listeners out there, we appreciate you dropping in, giving a listen, and until next episode, be good to each other. <laughs>